Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. On today's show, we have Francia Berry, who is a former graduate of the University of Texas at Austin's LBJ School of Public Affairs in 2016. Um, and she's the former deputy director of public engagement for the Elizabeth Warren campaign for presidency. And she's the former chief of staff to San Antonio's Councilman William Cruz Shaw. Um, and she was the National Advance Associate on Hillary for America in the summer and fall of 2016, and a government relations legislative assistant for the city of Austin uh, in 2015 and 2016. Um, am I am I getting everything, Brencia? Yes, yes, for the most part. And I, I think also a huge part of the work that I did with Senator Warren was um, serving as her um, National Deputy Advance Director as well. So, um, you know, working on a lot of those campaign events uh, leading up to the time where I got promoted to public engagement and worked in the communications team. That's great. So today I want to have a conversation with you about race and politics and the electoral process. And really you're, you're a very high profile um, African-American uh, female policy uh, expert and, and advocate in the Warren campaign, but also in local San Antonio politics. So there's so much to discuss. Uh, I think the Warren campaign won. I think the work that you did for her was fantastic. And I thought the, the campaign was such a powerful campaign um, all throughout 2019 and 2020. Uh, in a lot of ways within the Democratic Party, the work that Elizabeth Warren did was really sketching and, and setting out this framework for a return to the New Deal politics of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in a very, very robust way. And there was real outreach for people of color, especially the African-American community. So I'd like to, one, ask you, you know, what did you do for Senator Warren, um, both during the campaign, but even before, and how effective do you think that kind of outreach was uh, during the campaign? Yes. Okay. So first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited and so um, grateful to share the space with you. Um, I think that Part of what helped me in my policy work was uh, having been able to be a part of your class, and I learned a lot from that. Uh, but in terms of the work that we did, so I was really grateful. I, I started with her um, in 2018 uh, during her Senate race, and so I served as her advance director, really um, helping shape her campaign events and the the visuals and all of that, but I also helped as a special advisor in a lot of our outreach that we did prior to the presidential campaign, helping with red to blue races, um, statewide races, congressional districts. Um, and we also had uh, one of my close friends and colleagues who was our, who ended up being our African-American outreach director during the presidential race. I worked really closely with her, but um, you know, as you 
as you mentioned from the beginning, uh, Senator Warren had an intersectional approach to policy, and it really was uh, about making sure that all of the policies that our team was putting out was to what would be rooted in the history of institutional um, and structural racism and oppression. And, can, and, and Brencia, can you explain to our listeners, what do you mean by intersectional approach that the Senator followed? So, you know, one example that I can give is uh, the, we, we came out with several working agendas uh, and one of them was the working agenda for black America. And this was an extremely extensive uh plan, and it's still on her website today, that uh, covered like 25 of our plans in terms of housing and affordability, um, investing in entrepreneurs of color, um, and Black maternal and infant mortality, uh, closing the uh, wage gap. And uh, I mean, when it comes to gender, race, ability, sexuality, um, all of the various uh, and communities that are marginalized and oppressed, making sure that we are capturing uh, the people who often live at the intersections of of the systems that have um, that have been oppressive. Now, when you think about the Warren campaign and really the Democratic Party uh, and African-Americans, what what made the Warren campaign in your mind stand out for the approach to its approach to race and the candidate, Senator Warren's approach to race, say, in contrast to people uh, like Senator Sanders um, and just the other people in the field, including the presumptive nominee, Senator Biden, former Vice President Biden? What, what made her approach stand out? And really, in your mind, when as, as her special advisor, what did you try to do? What did you try to add, given your own knowledge of, of race and democracy, African-American history, the history of civil rights, to her, her approach to African-American outreach? Yeah, so um, I... I I think that overall, and, and the Democratic Party is is trying its best. So I will only speak to my experience and what I um, why I chose her. Uh, as Congresswoman Presley says, you know, policy is my love language. And from the very first uh, event I did with her, uh, she was speaking at the National Action Network conference about redlining. That was one of the first conversations that I had with her. Uh, so for me, what stood out about our team's policy approach was the fact that it was not just about, okay, uh, you know, we know that we need to improve the, the, the situation and the lives of, of Black people, but it was about tracing it back to the actual policies that had been harmful and created these inequities and going the extra mile to, to fix that. So, you know, for example, the, as I mentioned, one of the plans was investing in entrepreneurs of color. And so part of that plan was to create a um, equity fund for entrepreneurs of color to invest $7 billion into, um, 
into entrepreneurs of color so that they could have access to capital, which doesn't happen and that hasn't happened. And we see, uh, like you mentioned, the New Deal, how um, how much economic disparity was created after the New Deal. And I think that she as a candidate um, and just and even before her candidacy, she spoke very boldly about um, the inequities uh, that were a direct result of intentional policies that uh, the U.S. put in place. And so for me, that was extremely important for um, the next candidate that I worked for, that they had that deep understanding, especially after um, after we saw what happened in 2016 and, and this time around with um, with with going against President Trump. <laughs> now... What do you think about the Black community and why are Black voters um, seemingly so attached to Joe Biden? It seemed like when we thought about the race, there were progressives like Elizabeth Warren and even Senator Sanders who who seemed to be much more robust in their policy approach to things like mass incarceration, African-American poverty, unemployment, um, race in the environment. Uh, race and access to bit small business loans and entrepreneurship, um, you know, uh, the continuation of residential and public school segregation. Seems like there were other candidates from Co- Cory Booker to to, to Joe to Joe to um, Kamala Harris to especially Elizabeth Warren who had more ideas, fresher ideas. Why why couldn't anybody? You know, we've ended up. It seems the presumptive nominee is Joe Biden. Why couldn't anybody really? gain traction within the African American community in a substantive way? You know, I have struggled and thought about this for um, a while. And I think that part of it, uh, I think that there's a intergenerational divide in, in voter voting in our voting base, especially in the black community. Um, and and what do you mean by that intergenerational divide? Uh, an older baby boomer set of voters versus Gen X and millennials and Generation Z, or what? What's the yeah. what's the cleavage? Yeah, I think that that is part of it, um, especially when we start to factor in the um, the early state aspect of elections. Um, and so, when you look at states like. South Carolina, that was when I think uh, we saw a huge momentum, uh, huge momentum for uh, Vice President Biden. And I also think that unfortunately, um, there's a lot of electability uh, conversations that were consistent throughout the primary that were challenging, that made it more challenging for women and um, people of color in this primary. So I, I think that there were several factors that that played into it and it will be, um, especially in, in light of this current pandemic, it will be very challenging to, um, to get that voter base excited and and push and push through on this one, so um, 
Yeah. I'd like to um, talk about black women in the elected and electoral sphere for, for, for a moment. Um, and then we'll move on to, to COVID-19. Uh, people like Ayanna Presley, who is, is, is fabulous and, and so empowering in Massachusetts, um, you know, they've been so articulate and so eloquent about uh, the power of Black women voters. Um, obviously, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been very eloquent about Latinx voters and Green New Deal. Um, I think there's a paradox, and I want to ask you about this, because obviously, as somebody who has worked with campaigns, has been chief of staff to elected officials, there's a paradox in the sense of Black women are so powerful as a voting block for the Democratic Party, nationally and locally. Yes. Yet there's a disparity between the power of their vote and not only their representation as elected officials, but their representation within the supply chain of politics, meaning chief of staff, advisors to senators, um, advisors to, to, to elected officials in the House of Representatives. Um, at the municipal, at the state level as well. Uh, one, what do you think about that disparity? And and two, what can be done about it? Especially when you do have these voices like Ayanna Presley, you have voices like yourself. How can, how can Black women, and obviously the entire Black community, but specifically Black women, leverage the power? Because the data tells us they're the most reliable Democratic voter in the United States. Yet Absolutely. there's a real disparity uh, between that reliability and becoming very powerful figures within the party. Like, based on the data, you know, Democratic Party tickets should absolutely have not only Black people, but Black women in those tickets. And yes. based on the data, um, the Speaker, when you think about the Speaker of the House of the party, or the majority yes. leader or the majority whip. It really shouldn't look like uh, Clyburn and Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer. A black woman should be part of that discussion too. So where where this disparity is very, very, I think, frustrating, but what can be done about, about that disparity? Yes, yes. Um, you know, I think that there are a few factors. Um, one is just opportunity. I, it saddens, I think that, and I'll speak for the Democratic Party specifically, but I think we just have to do a, a better job of being intentional about, like you said, even at, at the highest ranking levels of government and the people who are running um, the offices, like, like chiefs of staff and policy directors and, and and the people that are impacting, directly impacting the elected officials, um, we have to do a better job of being intentional about that. And that would will take internal work uh, from the Democratic Party. And I think that we saw in this election cycle, we saw a lot more um, people that were on campaigns speaking out about their desire for diversity, equity, and inclusion to become a core part. And I, I think it happened in many of the, of the presidential campaigns. Um, so we, we really have to do that internal work and prioritize it and make sure that we're 
putting people in those positions in terms of making key decisions for the people, the candidates, the elected officials. But we do also have to uh, recruit Black women and get Black women into office and vote for Black women. And, and you know, we're seeing this right now with the uh, conversation about um, the vice presidential pick. There are, like, Black women are really lobbying and being vocal about the fact that, yes, we are the most reliable voting block and the Democratic Party owes us um, the there was a, a great video uh, that came out a few days ago with, you know, Angela Rye and Bernie Packnett and several other um, leading black women um, political voices saying, we want a black woman vice president. Uh, we have, we have been here and we've been holding it down and it's time. So I think that it just is going to take um, advocacy from all ends. Uh, we need our, um, our white brothers and sisters, our brown, black, everybody, we all need to come together and advocate for um, black women to hold these positions, get elected and, um, and be given opportunities. I wanna follow up with that and that discussion about black women in the vice presidential slot in the Democratic Party. No Black woman in American history has ever been on any major party ticket. And I say major party ticket because smaller party tickets have run Black women such as Angela Davis and certainly Shirley Chisholm ran for president, but no Black woman has ever made either the Republican or Democratic Party uh, national ticket. I want to ask you about what do you think, because you've been in these rooms um, as chief of staff in San Antonio and as part of the Warren campaign, you've been in these rooms where people are strategizing and making decisions and really having debates. When you think about the Democratic Party and insiders and donors and people who Mm -hmm. think about the cold calculus of politics, what do you think are some of the positives and negatives attached to names like Stacey Abrams, who's a UT LBJ school alum, the Georgia representative, uh, former state representative who's now running a voting rights movement and organization in Georgia, but was defeated in a gubernatorial race in 2018 that was marred by voter suppression and racial discrimination. Um, uh, People talk about Val Demings, the Florida Florida representative who's African-American, and of course, Kamala Harris, who's really the highest um, ranking elected official in the United States, who's a black woman, Um, Kamala Harris, the senator out of California. What Give me, give me, and give our listeners just a a small, candid analysis of what would be the pluses and minuses that Democratic Party operatives um, in the Biden campaign would be thinking about vis-a-vis adding any of those women to the ticket, and in a way that they might think of as just in quotes objective analysis in in quotes. Yeah, what would be the pluses and minuses? You know, I think that um, one, <laughs> like huge plus for for um, for uh, Stacey Abrams, leader Abrams is is the momentum that she had. Um, I mean, she really had nationwide um, support and people cheering for her uh, when she was running for governor, and I 
I have read and, you know, a lot of thought leaders have pointed to the fact that one of the uh, things that could count against her is that she does not have a ton of experience in terms of, like you said, the same national um, policy experience and uh, executive experience. Yeah, she's never been elected at the federal level or or, or really, yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, That uh, people like Senator Harris has, uh, like you said, she is uh, a sitting U.S. senator and and she does have that experience. Um, and so I think that that is something that I have been uh, thinking about in terms of which direction that they may go. Now, I do also know that part of the cold calculus is the Midwest when they are thinking about polling and places where um, Vice President Biden uh does need to get, you know, the electoral votes to win the presidency. Uh, but when we think yeah. about Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, which Hillary yes. Clinton lost by seventy thousand votes, can't can't you win those states if you have a absolute robust African American turnout, especially of Black women? Or is the calculus saying, which I've thought of as well, because of the Shelby Holder decision? voter suppression in the United States is too embedded for these Black votes to count in places like Ohio, Florida, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. And at that point, if that is true, then you really couldn't win with them because there's too many obstacles to have a this, the same kind of robust Black female vote that catapulted Barack Obama to re-election in 2012. Is that part of the calculus? I definitely think so. And I definitely think so as we are as we were facing so much uncertainty in the time of the coronavirus uh, and, you know, I mean, looking at even the, um, the congressional district special elections that just happened with in California uh, with Katie Hill's old seat and the, the district in Wisconsin, when we are gearing up and looking at potentially uh, having mail in ballots in in states where there is, there are conservative um, governors, and even you know, California was concerning because there is a uh, there is a, a Democratic governor, and that seat was still uh, lost. And and although there's like going to be uh, the special election was lost, but that seat is still going to be up again in a few. Right. Months. It's right. Exactly. But it it was a big. It was a huge indicator. And, and maybe Hugh just is too um, aggressive, but it was an indicator of the changes that we're looking at in terms of mail-in ballots. And like you said, the opportunity for voter suppression is even greater as uh, our voting systems were already challenged, but we have to do this massive shift relatively quickly. Um, and we just don't know what's ahead of us. So I think that to your point, yes, it, there there is definitely concern about um, voter suppression, but um, we also, I also don't want to frame it in the sense of, you know, that black people will not get out and vote, or that we won't do what is needed if there is a black woman on the ticket, because I 
do believe that um, that black people and black women will show up as they always do. All right, my my final question is concerning the coronavirus, uh, COVID nineteen, and really the Democratic Party because we know the Democratic Party has not been in power. Um, the, they they have the House of Representatives, um, but they had to craft a deal, a stimulus package uh, that really um, was not nearly as progressive progressive as I think even Speaker Pelosi and certainly Senator Warren and Senator Sanders would have liked. Um, what can the Democratic Party do in the context of COVID-19 and the massive racial disparities that we've seen in terms of Black death and suffering uh, of, of both uh, victims, but also frontline workers, those who are incarcerated, um, African-Americans not having access um, the same kind of access to telecommute from home. Absolutely. Um, as the white counterpart, less than 20% of us have that access. Um, black kids who are in poor districts not having, you know, experiencing food insecurity and food injustice because schools have closed down. But at the same time, you have governors like Governor Kemp of Georgia who have opened everything up and really are presenting black people with a crisis because they are predominantly these frontline workers at the nail salons, delivering packages at restaurants, black and Latinx people are going to be more exposed to the virus. And then we've seen armed militias threatening our democracy in Michigan and elsewhere. What should the Democratic Party be doing, especially in light of not just all this uncertainty, but all this oppression that we've, mm -hmm. we've seen um, really unleashed on communities of color that don't have bubbles of protection against COVID and unemployment and, and racism. And, and I might add, we've seen the police brutality um, uh, nationally against African-Americans who are perceived not to be socially distancing, especially in yes. New York City, but elsewhere, and whites being treated completely different and professionally, right. both white citizens, but also even armed militias. So it's a very, very dangerous and, and tragic time and moment and era we're living in, in in American history. And what, if anything, can a Democratic Party do? What should it be trying to do at this point? Yeah, you know, I think that um, there are, <laughs> it's going to take bold action on um, on the part of the Democratic Party uh, to really address, like you said, I mean, it is also once again, intersectional, like you said, when it comes to education, uh, healthcare, and, uh, and employment, that one, as we are looking at reopening, uh, and there needs to be a solid plan. And I hope that our democratic leadership continues to fight like hell and push to make sure that people um, who are the most vulnerable, which are majority black and brown people, um, are a huge part of whatever uh, we put forward in terms of at all levels, federal, state, local. Uh, so I'm actually in Chicago, uh, right now and you know like you said we have seen that uh, over in garfield park uh, people have been uh id'd to show that they live in certain places and policed in the time of coronavirus that has to stop you know um the the police chief from from dallas uh, is is our incoming police chief here we all police departments need to 
mayors need to be working with police departments to make sure that um, that that is not happening and that there are policies in place to to avoid that type of discretion and uh, abuse and misuse of power. Um, I'm really, really sad. And I want to call out, you know, Breonna Taylor, one of our frontline workers who, who wasn't even safe enough to uh, like she, the work that she's doing to save other people's lives did not prevent her from being killed in her own home uh, by a militarized police state. Uh, And so we really do, one, we need to figure out uh, a ways to safely reopen because in Georgia, like you said, the people on the front lines providing services um, are Black folks. And so if we're going to be reopening places, we need to make sure that people are getting tested. We need to expand testing for everybody and and stop putting people in harm's way, especially black and brown people. And so there are so many organizations who are on, um, who are advocating and and pushing. I know here in Chicago we have right to recovery, and there are nationwide efforts to try to protect uh, black and brown communities. So I think that democratic leaders and and just leaders in general need to listen to black people. Uh, we need to figure out a way to. Uh, provide some type of relief when it comes to healthcare as black people are dying, you know, here in Chicago, six times at the rate of white people um, who are um, catching the coronavirus and, and people, and I have personally uh, witnessed friends who have black women who have been turned away, who have asthma, who have preexisting conditions, who weren't able to get tested. Um, And uh, we, we saw the young woman in Massachusetts who, who died as a result of that. And so there's too much discretion that's uh, that's happening right now. And we know that when uh, dealing with systems and institutions, when there's discretion, Black people will always, too much discretion, Black people will always suffer. So it really is up to our lawmakers and elected officials to start uh, thinking about ways to eliminate barriers for people uh, on the front lines and who are disparately impacted by all of this, but to also start to put systems in place to eliminate discretion uh, in certain areas when it comes to policing uh, Black neighborhoods unduly for uh, social distancing, as well as um, making sure that hospitals and emergency rooms are not turning people away. And that uh, there was one really sad case where uh, a man here in Chicago named Carl Red, who was a veteran, died and died with a with a, a ton of medical bills. And he was scared to go get um, health care. And he died from the coronavirus because of the the fear of the medical bills. And that's just no way for us to treat our veterans, um, for us to treat our essential workers. And so I, I just... I think that it is way past time for our elected officials to be bold in the action that they're taking as we are facing this global pandemic. All right. So we'll end it there. <laughs> our Democratic Party elected officials need to listen to Black people, try to mitigate the, the really uh, 
catastrophic kaleidoscopic damage that's happening and incurring in communities of color. Um, thank you so much. We've been joined by, I really enjoyed our conversation, Brencia Berry, uh, who is a native of Texas, and she is a, a alum of the LBJ School of Public Affairs, where she earned her master's degree in public affairs. Uh, she has served as National Deputy Director of Public Affairs and the Deputy Advanced Director for the Elizabeth Warren Presidential Campaign. Um, and as the National Deputy Director of Public Engagement, she created the vision for building issue-centric events for Senator Warren and surrogates and served as the communication department lead for policy rollouts. Uh, she was the first black woman to be named chief of staff or council member in the, San, in the city of San Antonio's history. And um, her ultimate goal is to build power in marginalized communities and build more equitable outcomes by serving and giving. So through service-oriented leadership. So Brencia Berry, thank you for joining us here on Race and Democracy. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph, that's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H, and our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu, and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.